G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Just a quick reminder, if you are looking for more amazing OT content, check out otpodcast.com, a resource that has a list of amazing OT-related podcasts for your viewing pleasure. This episode, I got to chat with Talia, who I have found online about a year ago when she started a YouTube channel when she was on her first placement in order to share resources, share the experience to hopefully allow other students at the time the opportunity to gain some knowledge from her experience. She's since graduated. We talked about the direction of where her YouTube channel is now going and her experience of that transition from student into new grad practitioner. There was no sugarcoating this. Talia was amazingly resilient and and quite vulnerable during this chat. I'm absolutely honored to have had this conversation with her. We talked about everything from how amazing the profession is right through to maintaining your mental health your own mental health throughout that transition which can at times be a bit tricky so i hope you guys enjoy the reason i was really keen to talk to you is essentially outside of like your actual clinical work you've built like this whole little presence within the profession using youtube and obviously we connected on twitter and that kind of stuff So I'm super keen to hear, like, because you started that. The reason I found it was, I can't remember the reason why, like, what I was looking for, but I found it, and you were still a student at the time. Yeah. When did you graduate? You graduated last year? Yeah, December last year. So how long ago did you start your YouTube channel? So I would have started it September 2017. So I started at my first day of my first 10-week block placement. So that's the reason I started it, I guess you could say, was to record that placement. Yeah, so it would have been then, September. So to record the placement, but record it for what? Like why did you why did you decide to start it? Like of all things, why did you decide <laughs> to start a YouTube channel? It's not to be famous and it's not because I think I'm amazing or anything. I feel like I need to preface that anytime I bring it up to someone. They're like, oh, do you want to get famous for your celebrity? I'm like, no. It's actually quite cringy and uncomfortable for me to be putting myself out there like this surprisingly um it I think it came down to at the time I was wanting to maybe pursue or was considering pursuing medicine and I had made the decision um within myself that if I started medicine I would want to start a YouTube channel documenting that because there was there's a lot of medical students and now doctors who have channels and social media presence in the US and a few, I think I only follow maybe one or two in the UK and maybe one in Canada. But at the time I couldn't, I didn't know anyone in Australia who was doing it. And I'd want to document my GAMSAT journey and everything like that because I'd seen how that's such a resource for students and for me at the time considering medicine. And I realised there was no one in OT who I had found at least that was doing that and so I told myself well if I can make this goal that in a few years I'll do that but to prove it to myself that I actually could do it I might as well start now and like as a challenge to myself just do it now to prove to yourself that you're capable of doing it instead of something you just keep pushing off it seems like, like a strange that. challenge 
so. Have you have you always done like video stuff? Because I just know most people would be like, oh, there's no way. Like I get people on here like that worry about obviously people who are listening to us. They're just listening, but we can see each other because the video is turned on. Yeah. I get people on that are worried about that. Like, oh my god, are you recording the video? I'm like, no, I'm not. Just the audio. <laughs> Calm. It's okay. So have you always like had a like putting yourself out there like audio is one thing but putting yourself out there on video is a completely different sort of a beast and I don't think a lot of people would would really want to do that so what what made you do or what brought you to that conclusion or were you always comfortable with that kind of stuff no I don't think I, I still I'm still not comfortable but I guess because at the end of the day the things I do I edit and and I also just tell myself like it doesn't just get over it. It doesn't matter. Um, like if I don't look good, I'm someone who really doesn't like my picture being taken and I will get out of group shots. I will like ask for someone to crop me out. I'm always blinking, always ruining pictures. And that's <laughs> always blinking. I swear every photo, they have to take so many ID badges, everything, always blinking. Um, and so I don't know, for so some reason to me, videos in my mind, I just tell myself, oh, you, it's, a, it's a moving image you'll get one good angle in there somewhere. You won't look horrible for <laughs> the whole thing. There's got to be something. But I think because I've consumed so much video content growing up, especially YouTube, I think I justified it to myself that it has the potential to help people and I shouldn't let my own insecurities of not liking myself in a picture on video overtake the benefit it could have for someone else because I know other people's content has been quite beneficial to me. So why not return the favour to the community in some way? Do you think, and I'm showing my age here because you're obviously much younger than I am, do you think that your generation is, I guess, more at home with putting themselves out there on that sort of thing? Um, I'm not sure. I think, of course, there's probably within every generation there would be a few people um, for whatever the medium was at the time, who would be braver or have more confidence to to do that, to put yourself out there, whatever that looked like. I'm not sure because it's still, it's. I guess it's just a form of public speaking in a way and not everyone wants to do that. You, We're more confident and comfortable around friends. Not everyone has their, I guess, example would be a, their Snapchat on public. It's, But some people do. I don't know if it's our generation. If I was to argue one way or the other, I'd probably say maybe each generation is getting more comfortable or confident using social media and putting themselves out there because it's becoming more of the norm. But none of my my friends and people my age are always telling me I I couldn't do that or I don't know how you do that. So I don't know. Yeah. No, I think think you've got a point with regards to like everyone has their sort of their generations thing and I just find that like I still have like I remember you probably don't remember but I remember a time when there was no internet <laughs> no I don't remember yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel old but uh so like but you guys your generation you this is this has always sort of been there for you like I remember when YouTube didn't exist like I remember when it wasn't a th- I remember when Facebook didn't exist all of these things for me are things that sort of started during like as I was growing up and we kind of jumped on board as each one 
kind of took off. I was probably one of the more early adopters and would jump on different platforms and try them out. And there's you know, platforms that have come and gone, like Vine and that sort of stuff that I had a look at. So if it was any good and if I could use it, usually for an OT purpose in any way, and you know, some of them survived, some of them are, are no longer with us. Bye bye MySpace. <laughs> Although that was that was before I was at uni. So, but for you guys, this stuff has always been there. So like, how do you were you like a big YouTube watcher as a kid? Yeah, yeah. I I definitely have have consumed my fair share. <laughs> YouTube content, probably enough for a small town. Um, Yeah, I'd come home and watch hours of YouTube and and I started making very strange YouTube content I would reflect now on with my friends in high school. So I've had many little channels and just making strange videos and practising editing and just really loved that side of things. And then got more serious about maybe making a channel with one of my friends in probably grade, grade 11, 12. And so I've had that exposure and that sense of creating content, but definitely consuming it was a big part of my free time or my socialising with friends. Like we would come home in high school and hop on Skype and watch the same thing at the same time or that's what we talked about it wasn't everyone I would have certain friends who would Mm. be my YouTube friends and we'd have that in common but definitely for me YouTube has been a big part of my life I don't know if that's a sad thing to say or not no I I was actually just thinking while you were saying that I'm like that would be the big difference between someone I guess looking at this without the context from the outside going oh that sounds sad but to me I'm like looking at it from an OT point of view and you highlighted some of the points then like that was you know, it was part of your social interaction. That was part of your creative expression. Like there was a lot of things that you were getting out of it that, you know, other people might get out of painting or football or like they they had their their thing, their interest. And like you said, you had your friends that you had that common interest with. And I mean, that's that's how we make friends. We find people with common interests and, and we connect with them and we can discuss all things about it. And I think the other benefit of that is that that's, I would assume probably how you started to learn like the editing side of it was talking with your friends about it and, you know, making your little videos and trying them out and they might've been doing theirs and you can compare notes and learning in a group is, is often not necessarily faster, but more effective way of sort of learning things. If you're trying to learn things together. Yeah. Trial and error, learn from each other's mistakes. And another thing I was just thinking about as you were talking about the benefits I guess YouTube has had for me (laughs) again that sounds a bit strange has been that because it has offered because it has so many different topics uh, and areas covered in a way I've learned so much about a lot of different things uh, growing up from like my mom's never taught me makeup I've learned everything I know about makeup from YouTube and then I was kind of the makeup person amongst my friends and I know like know all these things, um, life skills, relationship advice. If you're getting it from me, it's probably somehow come from YouTube like that I've put together and put my own take on. So in some ways in my mind, I feel like the content of YouTube has helped, ra- oh, maybe not raise me because that could insult my mum. <laughs> 
like transform me into the person I am. And I often say that about TV content. I am the summation of the TV shows I watched. Frasier, Will and Grace, Vicar Dibley, Black Books are who I am. Like I've watched those oh, since I was the highbrow a- stuff. So it's <laughs> all highbrow stuff. I wanted to be a psychiatrist since I was very little from watching Frasier. From Fra- I, I was gonna say from Frasier. No idea what it was, but I was just like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds cool. <laughs> I think it was definitely before it was age appropriate for me to be watching. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, yeah, definitely TV and YouTube, I say, a part of who made me who I am. So you started it, started your, well, this channel, sounds like you've had other channels, but you started this channel, which is called Endless Education. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. What a name. <laughs> What's what's wrong with it? I like it. Uh, okay, good. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, like there's probably some regrets in there that I didn't put anything OT in the title. But at the time, I was thinking I was going to go and study medicine. I was going to go do other things. So I didn't want to be have a title that held me back to only OT, if that makes sense. So I mm. wanted it to be educational, Broad. yeah, something silly like that. Um, so it says yeah. occupational therapist like right under it. I'm yeah, sure. so like people still find it. So I guess, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so when you when you first started, so your very first video, well, look at it here, is a day in the life of an OT student vlog. What sort of stuff were you covering in those early videos, or how how and how often were you actually putting out videos? So I vlogged, I think every single day of my ten week placement. Um, so that was. 50 videos-ish. I think I joined two days sometimes. So I think I was basically outlining everything I did in a day. (laughs) And I think the justification in my mind is for someone who hasn't started studying OT or someone who is studying OT but hasn't done placements yet, and even so if you have, you really don't know what a day looks like, the boring bits, the... Um, the documentation, all those things. So for me, I can see how it's boring to some people. And even looking back, I'm like, oh, why did I spend so long on that clip of stairs? I don't know why. (laughs) Art, hashtag art. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going through my mind. But (laughs) I wanted to show that this is it. This is what it could look like. It's not always going to look like this. This is just my experience. But to give you some idea of what it could look like because going into placement especially your first placement can just feel so daunting you just people can tell you their experiences but without seeing it and experiencing it yourself yeah it's I just hoped it could be some help to some people seeing all the little things that happen what to expect and things like that and where, where was your first placement like what so setting my, was it um my first placement was with within a pediatric clinic that was based at my uni. Um, so it was people from the community accessed it. Yeah. And how did you go, how did you go, like, did you ask them about videoing in the setting? Like, how did that conversation happen? So I've never videoed actual clients or things like that. And that was always, like, very cemented in my mind. I'm never going to do that unless I have explicit permission. Uh, I think it was maybe the the end of the first week or second week of placement where we hadn't seen any clients yet. We were just doing, I think, some handover and orientating to the clinic. 
where I was really nervous and I struck up the courage to go speak to the clinic manager and I was really nervous and I had this whole speech in my head of like, this is why I do it, this is what the benefits are, this is what I promise I won't do, et cetera, et cetera. And she was just so excited. She was just like, oh, my goodness, YouTube, let me look it up. Like, oh, she was just so happy and enthusiastic about it. It caught me so off guard because I was so terrified going into that conversation. But she was so supportive. And even now I think she's ended up showing it to students who have done the same clinic placement again. And, yeah, so I was very lucky in that sense where she was totally fine with it. She talked to... um, like the uni's clinical education people and they were very happy with it and yeah there was a lot of interest in it from the uni so maybe they could get something out of it type thing but <laughs> <laughs> which I was fine with but then my next placement I decided that I didn't want to I wanted to be upfront about it and it was more in the public health setting so I knew I had less chance of it getting approved yeah, and it yep. Yeah, everyone around me, like my clinical education support officer type people at the hospital were very supportive of it, very excited about it. And they reviewed my previous videos and saw that I didn't do anything inappropriate or put anyone's information at risk, etc. And um, it got shut down by the director and they were quite upset for me, but kind of told me don't bother pushing it because it might not end well and so I was quite upset about that actually um not for that long got over it but um so that's why for my second placement I have more of these sit down reflection videos which I acknowledge aren't as interesting as seeing me on placement but I still wanted to put out some reflections and some feedback and my experiences without explicitly saying this is the ward, this is what where I am. And, yeah, I still wanted to make something positive out of that kind of negative experience. But I, I think showing that side too, like that's that's an important side of it as well. Like how we learn things, doesn't matter if you're on placement or not, like how we learn things is by reflecting on them and going over them and working out how they fit with what we already know and, you know, what else we need to know and where, what gaps in my knowledge does this fill and that kind of stuff like that reflection process and uh, is an important part. And I actually, I think they were the, probably the first videos that I found because I remember a video mainly because of the editing. I think you were studying and the camera was like just on the desk and it was like showing you like writing stuff down and it was like in between sort of talking head bits. It was a bit of B-roll. Yep, B-roll. There we go. That's the word, B-roll. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like the reflection things, because to me, that's the kind of stuff I find interesting because that sort of tells, that gives me insight into what's going on in your head as opposed to like where you are and what you're doing, which is which is awesome as well, especially, you know, obviously I found, when I found you, I was not a student <laughs> and hadn't been for some time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually... I thought it was deliberate. <laughs> like the difference between the two placements, I thought you were just showing a different side. So if you want to, nope. just claim that. Just be like, All right, yes, I'll claim no. that from now on. Thank you. <laughs> director duties. I, uh, As a director, I decided I was going to show yes. a different side of things. A different side of me, a different side of Different placement. side. <laughs> that was your, was that your second, third year placement or your fourth year placement, that one? That was my fourth year placement. So okay. that was in a mental health setting. Ah, yes. Good old mental health, my wheelhouse. 
Uh, and then you went back to uni for a semester? Yes, my final semester. Yeah. How, what sort of things did you video about during that? Or did you video much during that? I think I did. I think I... <laughs> it was that long ago, you forgot. Yeah, you're testing my knowledge. I really don't know my <laughs> videos that well. <laughs> um, uh, I think I did vlog a few weeks. Like our first week back was an intensive lecture. Oh, no, that was the first week before. Now I'm getting confused. I know I did vlog a few weeks, especially my final weeks. We had a lot of group assignments in that last semester and I was doing my honours research project. I think I did a few interviews with people in that time. Because you had, you had some videos with other students, so I presume that was after placement or was that during your placement? Yes, I did interview a few of my friends. If I think that's maybe what you're talking about, yep. I think it's called like placement rambles. Yep, uh, that's the ones. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, getting all of our, not all of our reflections, but having a discussion about our different experiences and because they really do vary because I think that's also something I'm quite cognizant of is that this is just my experience and that's not going to be the same as other people's and I want to make sure that I'm showing uh and providing other people's opinions and viewpoints and experiences because I know that I'm not going to be the best role model or have the best or the worst experiences to learn from. So when I get those opportunities and when I have people who are willing to be on camera and express their experiences, I'm like, yes, please, please come. They're I'm sure they're sick of my voice one minute in. Someone else talk for a bit. <laughs> when I can, <laughs> get them on board as well. Don't think it's like that at all. After that, like you graduated and you made the transition to a therapist, like an OT as you are now. Yeah. How did that transition, how did it transition play out just for you personally? And then how did that change the, the channel and the videos that you were making? I think in my mind for the second part of that question, for some reason I think, oh, now I'll be able to make, I'll have more time for content. I'll know what I'm talking about a bit more. It'll be more interesting because I'm a real OT, not just some student. Like, she's a student. Why does she think her life's interesting? I don't know. But the, Imposter the, syndrome. Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely what I've been experiencing this yeah, seven months, these past seven months. Why did you look at your watch? My watch tells me the date. Oh, oh, I was going to say, like, I've had seven people months. comment that yes. on my channel before. Why did she look at her watch when she said the date? My watch <laughs> tells me the date. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. I was very confused. Like, you've now, worked it out to the minute. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, personally, the transition has been, it's, I've had multiple transitions happening at the same time. So, moving out of home for the first time. I only got my P plates at the end of last year. So I have my own car now <laughs> driving so on highway. For those not in Australia, yeah. that means she's allowed to drive. That's By it. myself. Her first her first license, essentially. <laughs> at at twenty two, I'm now on my red P plates. I'm very proud. Well um, done. <laughs> uh, so there's just been a, a a few major life, life changes. Changes, yeah. Yeah, so I've moved to a whole different town and city, so needing to get used to where things are, all that kind of stuff. And then on top of all that, becoming a health professional and being put in a situation <laughs> maybe not preferable for a new grad in my first job. So That definitely happens. 
yeah. <laughs> so a lot of challenges the past seven months. And I'm not not mad about it, what's happened the last seven months, because I think it's definitely shown me my strengths and given me so many opportunities to reflect on how much I've learned areas I want to improve in, things that I need from a job, the types of supports that are beneficial to me and that I feel that I need as well as to flourish, you might say, as a clinician and to be my best OT self. So, what sorts yeah. of things are they? What sorts of supports do you think, even just general, like what sort sort of supports do you think it's important for, uh, you know, new graduates trend, making that transition to make sure that they either keep an eye out for or, or definitely chase down? Having supervision, full stop. <laughs> um, yep, <laughs> definitely something that I th- that is. Uh, a requirement for new grads, Mm -hmm. but it's not always followed. Uh, Having good quality, I think one-on-one supervision is beneficial, but also peer opportunity for peer supervision, whether that's facilitated by an experienced clinician or it's just on top of one-on-one supervision with an experienced clinician. So are you you thinking like structured supervision or like just sort of informal debrief type stuff or what sort of stuff do you think is in, is is more important for the new grad? I think a bit of both, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, this is just my experience and I haven't experienced all the different modes yet. On placement, I had very – I've never had formal supervision before. Okay. So I had very informal after a group, have a quick chat, not really sitting down formal supervision. And in my first job, it's more been peer supervision. And I've found that that's the lack of clinical supervision with an experienced clinician has led me to feel quite uncertain and anxious and have this imposter syndrome because I haven't had someone say, you're doing a good job or try this, do this differently. You're doing a bad job. Just having that definite feedback has make it has made it a bit more stressful than I think it would have been had I had that type of input from an experienced clinician. Okay. And do you think that's something that workplaces should provide or is, do you think it's uh, like up to the, the therapist to chase that, that kind of supervision up or? I think it should be offered especially with obviously with new grads having that type of supervision with an experienced clinic with an experienced clinician I think if your workplace isn't offering or doesn't have the resources to offer peer supervision that's definitely something that I would encourage other new grads to seek out themselves whether it's just communicating regularly with your cohort in a Facebook group or in a Facebook chat or meeting up monthly with your friends who've graduated Um, I've been accessing informal external support from experienced clinicians and that's been really helpful. And uh, so reaching out to mentors and making and maintaining my contact with them has been really important for me the past six months and helped to keep me on track and helped me to realise what I need and deserve as a new grad and what my worth is and not to be pushed over. That's a, that's a big revelation. Yeah. <laughs> know my worth. 
it's definitely something I've learned the past six, seven months. Yeah, that's awesome. Because I, I, I do think that, I mean, ideally, it would be awesome if every employer like had a, a supervision policy, a supervision program that you know people could come into. And I know that where I used to work, um, my state health service, uh, we did have a really good supervision uh, model and it, it used to work. It used to work. Everyone, it was essentially mandatory for OTs to, to get supervision. Our model was that good that a lot of the other professions were trying to, or were borrowing it and modifying it. Um, so, and I, so I know what a good supervision model looks like, but I also know that that's not common, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, as you said, I would encourage people if you're not, if you do get to a workplace and they don't have that or you, you know, they don't have anyone there that, you know, can offer supervision, be proactive, definitely chase it up. Don't wait until, you know, you're burned out and you're sick of it before you start seeking help. Like try and find that day one. Like that should be one of the questions I would ask in a, in an yeah. interview interview definitely so you know every i've not been in a job interview before where they haven't said do you have any questions for us and if they haven't mentioned it or you don't know then um asking about you know their their views and their their policies around supervision should definitely be up there with you know probably more important than how much are you going to pay me (laughs) like yeah no, I agree. I totally agree. Bring your bring your list of questions as well. I've been complimented in many a job interview for having a little list and being prepared because that shows them that you actually care and are interested in the job. <laughs> so definitely add that to your list if it's not already there. Yeah. So what other so aside from supervision, like what other sort of challenges did you come up with during that transition to clinician from student to clinician or things that you overcome, not necessarily challenges, but things that you went, oh, that's different? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that I've come across has been partly due to the fact that we didn't really have a more senior experienced clinicians. The clinicians that were already there were more experienced than us, um, but we're only a few years out, um, a few years more experienced than us and therefore hadn't seen everything before and went 100% confident in every presentation that came up, which is understandable. So for us, it was working together and kind of problem solving as a team, putting all our little new grad minds together to try and problem solve these problems without (laughs) years of experience behind us. And just trying to find or at times fake that confidence that what you were doing in the moment you were sure of and you had all this experience behind you to back you up, which we didn't. And what what are the challenges? I think it really has been that kind of imposter syndrome type of feeling, the burnout of the caseloads that we had and... That's an interesting one, yeah. I think, with, with the burnout because I think that affects everyone differently. But I see it, I don't know whether it's just that we have a better awareness of burnout nowadays uh, or whether it's becoming mm. more of an issue. Like what sort of what sort of things did you see that may have contributed, not necessarily to yours or to other people that you work with, like what sort of things did you see that were contributing to people's burnout? Definitely the hours I was working, the caseloads I had, arguably I had a caseload of an experienced clinician from my first few weeks in the 
job um, with a sense of lack of clinical supervision and support. And uh, it, it ended up feeling like we were all slowly slipping and falling into this pit of despair and burnout. And I dramatic. think <laughs> it sounds dramatic. Yeah, I know, but I know but exactly I think, how it feels. Yeah, it's, I just, I kind of am in the place where I don't want to lie about it yeah. because I want people to, if they're going through it, not to feel alone in that other people have been feeling this way. Um, some of my friends, because I became very good friends, and I consider my they're my best friends, the colleagues I worked at. So I don't work at this job anymore. Oh, um, good. I left quite recently. <laughs> um, we would say we're the triangle of disaster. We okay. were just, <laughs> we were constantly looking out for, e- and still are constantly looking out for each other's mental health and well-being. And it, we would just go to each other to talk about how we're going right now and unload our concerns and our emotions on each other. And that obviously takes a toll on each other. And I would try not to do that to them because I know what it felt like when people would do it to mm. me, which to me, I'm happy for people to come and talk to me and um, release all their stress and anxiety. And I know that's something I need to work on, have <laughs> better boundaries. <laughs> but so I never wanted to do that to my friends, to my colleagues, because I know that it can then uh, affect your own well-being, taking on someone else's problems and issues. And I think that's an issue that comes back again to uh, somewhat to like your experience uh, clinician giving you supervision because I think in my experience from what I've seen and like I used to supervise um, like new grads and experienced clinicians and whoever else uh, when I worked clinically but I think when people are new grads their, their sole focus is getting the job done and learning how to get the job done and they they don't necessarily have that space to step back and go okay i'm doing this job but is this job killing me kind of thing again me being quite dramatic but i think having and and exactly what you just described is if you have a group of new grads which is is awesome peer supervision is amazing but i think when it gets to that level where you're almost like almost counseling each other like you talked about like you take that that stress off from someone else and you absorb it and like you said if there's three of you and each of you then is taking on two people's stress. The math isn't good that, you know, not a, not, no one's really winning in that situation. But what I think you can or what I think new grads can do in those situations is utilize the experience of an experienced clinician who hopefully, again, this is experienced clinician isn't going to be like the only KPI that qualifies this person to do it. But I know a lot of people with more experience probably have a better method of being able to, like you said, put those boundaries in and be able to help someone process um, those negative feelings and that information without it having a huge, I mean, it's still going to have some impact on the, the individual, but without taking the whole lot on themselves. So I know for me, when I was working clinically and I was actually a supervisor, that was something that I years ago like had to work on myself was like, how can I help these, all these people that I'm supervising, help them process, you know, when bad stuff happens. And I'm not saying that it always happens. It's not to paint that picture, but 
when it does happen, we need to be able to work through it and not, you know, just essentially drag everyone else into that pit of despair. <laughs> so that was something, and that was like I've been burned out. I've spoken about that on on multiple or other podcasts uh, before on Burnout to Lit Up, which is a podcast all about burnout. <laughs> so I've been there. I know what it feels like, and I know uh, working with a lot of new grads, I know how they do things and I know they're really they are really good supports for each other it's almost like a last resort like there was no one else there so you you, it kind of binds you together even tighter um because you know you all all three or four or however many people there are like you all know what you're all going through and you know you are really good supports but it's important to try and get some of that negative energy out of that circle as well otherwise it's just going to go around in circles and you know like water circling the drain kind of thing So I think that's something for new grads as well, is if you do find yourself in that spot and definitely seek out and and make those friends and make those connections and make those supports, but make sure that there's some way, whether it's through supervision or mentoring or even just uh, friends outside of work, which is another thing I see a lot of new grads do is they just pour themselves wholly and solely into work and the outside of work uh, life kind of takes a sideways step for a while. Mm. still try and hopefully maintain those connections and those friends outside of work because that can be a really good way of you don't have to go and like whinge to them every time something bad happens at work but just having people outside that you can talk about other stuff uh can be a really really good emotional support for for new grads as well and i think that's something we tried to do towards the end was because we would end up I guess it could have been also part of the problem was we were each other's social circle outside of work. So we tried, (laughs) emphasis on try, we tried to put together, we tried not to talk about work outside of work. But when you ask someone, you don't look good, how are you going right now? It would always come back to work because that usually was their source of stress. And two things I was just thinking about was now that I'm out of this job and somewhere else, I'm finding it so much easier to support my friends who are still going through this. But also that it's interesting how when when we're working with clients and their families or patients or consumers or whatever setting you're in, we're often hearing about and talking about quite traumatic, deep, heartfelt situations that are very stressful for our clients and we're having to sit there and hold that for them and listen and be there with them. And I'm fine. I'm quite, I don't have too much difficulty stepping away from those situations, holding on to that. But when it comes to people in my own life, it's different. And I don't know if it's because I'm putting on a different hat or I'm knowingly going into client situations going, I need to hold this, but keep this in this space and when I leave I can't take that with me because that's not going to help me help the next person so I don't know if that's kind of uh, shifting in gears or something that I, I need to work on and transfer to my own life when I am being a support person to my friends and family uh, possibly I, I think what you've what you've touched on there is when you're working with uh, you know people who are accessing a service there's already this sort of socially constructed barrier there so there's already this clinician patient thing and you don't have to think about it 
they 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 themselves are probably very well aware of this sort of boundary with regards to sharing and that sort of thing. Whereas with your friends, even if you have exactly the same conversation with them, there's not that boundary. So you either have to you think of it like a bucket. You either if the bucket's getting full, your bucket's getting full. You either need to slow down what's going into it or start emptying it out. So you either need to process their feelings, their emotions more effectively or better, or you need to try and find a way to put some of those boundaries in, you know, like, okay, I understand maybe you can't deal with that level of, you know, stress or chatter at this very point in time, but I'm going to go and go to the gym and work some off, work some energy off or, you know, do something within, within your coping mechanisms and then let's have a chat and we'll see how we go. So I think, with regards to that, it can be very similar. I think people get in trouble then, or the people that get in trouble are people that don't have a full awareness that that barrier is there, whether they like it or not. Um, especially in a lot of the, in Australia anyway, in a lot of the physical health areas, because they're wearing uniform, which puts automatically puts a barrier. I know in mental health, I say that in Australia, because in mental health, uh, in my state anyway, we didn't wear a uniform. And that was one of the reasons why was to, you know, at least limit that as a barrier because in mental health, the communication aspect of it is super important. So we need to try and reduce those barriers, but we still need to keep control of the the relationship and the communication, the situation. But I, I think what you've touched on there is, is awesome, is that is a, a socially constructed barrier that's already there. So it's not something like you were talking about before, like, oh, maybe I need to get better at putting barriers in. And I don't know about getting better or maybe just more experience with it, but for the client-patient relationship one, that one's there. It was there before you showed up. It was there. It'll be there well after you're finished in the profession. It's a, a socially constructed thing that has been there since the birth of medicine. I think there's still, um, I totally agree, walking into the room as a clinician that's there already in, in most cases. But I feel like there is still an art of, I feel like we've all or a lot of us have had the experience of going to a GP or going to a doctor's appointment and the differences between clinicians where I feel like they actually heard me. I feel like they actually listened and cared Mm. or I feel like they were just there to fill out a form. I feel like there's still an art of um, building that therapeutic alliance in the way that we do it. I don't, that might now be just a different topic to what we were just talking about. No, no, no. I think that's, that's exactly right. In my, in my head, it's kind of the same thing, but working from different ends. So when we work with a client, that barrier is there and we're going to try and bring it down so that we can connect and communicate with that person. With our friends, it's kind of the other way. There's no barrier there, but sometimes we need to put one up, even a little one. So it's kind of the same concept, but like, yeah, working in opposite directions in a way. That's how I visualize it anyway. No, that helped you moving your arms. Yeah, like yeah. That like trying understand. to do a little dance. <laughs> lucky no one gets to see this video (laughs) definitely that's something and again that's something like i was saying before that's something that comes with um experience and practice is you may not visualize that you know using my little metaphorical dance thing but being able to control a situation or even being aware of a situation would be the first step of being aware of a power differential being aware of this person's guarded i'm guarded here's how i'm feeling today blah 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 when you first go into a a therapeutic relationship 
just being aware of all those different points would be sort of step number one. And I think that's where I think a lot of new grads should be aiming for is not necessarily to be able to put those barriers in and that, all that sort of stuff. That comes later. That'll come with practice. But just being aware of uh, all of those different aspects. And I, I think for me, and even with my students now, because I, I work in academia now, being aware of self is massive. Because that's something like for me, I may have got taught that, but I probably didn't go to that lecture. But uh, I don't remember being taught that uh, when I was at uni way back <laughs> in the day. Uh, so, but I know from experience and working in mental health for my uh, my career, like that's massive. Like if I'm having a bad day, that's going to transfer to someone if I'm not careful. If they're having a bad day, that's going to transfer to me if I'm mm-hmm. not careful. Like I need to, like I can't control the other person and how they're feeling and all that sort of stuff. But I can be super aware of how I am, where I am in that, that point in time, what I'm bringing to the table. And I think that also just, just the awareness, if nothing else, just the awareness helps when it comes to, you know, like you said, holding someone's hope or holding someone's uh, stress or anxiety while you help them work through it kind of thing. Because I think if I'm aware of myself, then I'm less likely to just uncontrollably take all that on myself, if that makes sense. So I think that's that's one that would be one tip I would think for new grads anyway, would be to really start, if you haven't already, hopefully you have, but really start doing some practices around self-reflection, even little short ones, like before you go into a room to do an interview or, you know, before you go in and see a client, that kind of things, as well as like the peer supervision, like you were talking about, have a chat at the end of the day. Like, how was your day? What did you get up to? This is what went well. This is what I'm going to try next time. Those kinds of things. I think reflective practices, even though I think often it's sort of banged on about, I don't think it's given the, the importance that it actually deserves i think it becomes more evident to us once we're actually in practice the importance of it because we can spend so much time reading in textbooks or being having lectures on it and doing reflections on reflections at uni but once you're actually in this circumstance where you're starting to feel like you're numb Mm. in sessions just can't you're not really you're not there in the room and you walk out of that session going that's that totally affected my ability to provide quality services to my client. And to me, that's number one is being the best clinician I can be for my client. And if right now my well-being isn't where it could be or should be, I need to cut, that needs to be my first priority. And that took me, uh, I think it was maybe four or five months into my first job for me to go home one day, like have a mental health day me to go no this is actually affecting my work and take it back to what's most important to me is my quality of work with my clients it's affecting that therefore I, I'm still not putting myself first I'm still justifying it um, by the quality of my work for my clients but it still allowed me to go no I need to put my well-being ahead that, of that, again that's, that's an KPIs important thing to right note now. it comes with like you said self-reflection like knowing when you need a break. And it's, I think a lot of people too see it as like, oh, I'm failing or it's a weakness if you have a break. Like, no, you, that's, 
that's the old, uh, you know, aeroplane metaphor. Like, say, you put your own mask on first before you start helping others. Like, you, you we're in a job that we're in a job of helping other people and working with other people. And if we're not looking after ourselves, then we're not going to be as effective or, you know, the best, the best clinician that we can be for the people that we work with. So it is super important that we are looking after ourselves. Yeah, like who wants to listen to a doctor who's been smoking their whole life on why they should quit smoking? Like if you preach it, you can't even live it. Like who's gone? It's just, it's not, it's not authentic, I guess you could say. <laughs> we talk about self-care and well-being all the time. You think that would be pretty good at it innately, but I don't think so. <laughs> In your opinion, with regards to room to grow thinking about self-care us. and like looking after ourselves, in your opinion, what would you think would be the biggest things that new grads aren't doing with regards to self-care at the moment? Oh, that's a big question. Um, that's how I roll. <laughs> the biggest things that new grads aren't doing. It could be, like you've already said, uh, maintaining having that balance of what like having the work-life balance but I think the only thing that's coming to my mind right now is barriers for us I'm making excuses for us new grads um, is why we don't know what we need in that we don't really know because this is perhaps our first or second job what should be expected of us or what's okay for us to experience, for example, how many clients a day a new grad should see or what's reasonable for a new grad, what work stress is reasonable for a new grad to be put under. I just feel like we often, when I talk to my friends, we often don't know what standards we should be should be comparing ourselves to because we know as new grads we aren't going to be meeting the same targets as experienced clinicians. We're not going to be able to write reports as fast as them and so being able to reflect and realize like reflect on our own well-being and know when we're not doing okay I think those are some of the skills so do do you think with regard to like what you were just saying then like they they need to know like that you know you might not be able to do your documentation and stuff as quick as a you know, an experienced clinician, that kind of thing. Do you think that new grads are getting caught like comparing themselves to like experienced clinicians and that's causing a like, oh my God, I'm not as good as that person kind of thing? I think I, with the documentation for us at uni in placement, that was really highlighted well to us that you're not going to be able to do documentation as fast as your CE, but try and monitor your progress and see how much you can improve over the 10 weeks. Um, I think when you don't have a role model or someone in your workplace to make it specific to your workplace to say, um, I would only expect when I was a new grad, I would only expect me to be able to get through this many sessions or in a day, or I think when it's not made specific to your workplace, it can be harder for us to, relate that to our own situation so you think it's sense. you think it's more comparing across different practice areas different workplaces that might be causing a bit of a riff i think 
it was hard for us to know whether the amount of stress we were feeling was just what a new grad should be experiencing. Is this just the normal or this actually a level of stress where I should be concerned and should be seeking external support and like um, medical attention? How much stress should I be experiencing as a new grad? What's okay and acceptable versus what's uh, harmful? I think we're just unsure of that as well. Yeah, and I think that's that's, I mean that's massive. That's important. People need to know, like, okay, yeah, like I can. I I think it is not necessarily a fine line, but there's definitely a line where you need to find out. Well, okay, yeah, I can deal with this, but dealing with more than that is going to be harmful. It is going to have a negative effect on my mental health, or you know, even my enjoyment of the job. Like we all do things that we don't necessarily enjoy or necessarily want to do, but I think it's important that most, well, most of us would normally be aware like, you know, it's only for three days and I can deal with that. I have the coping mechanisms to be able to do that. But I think if you're completely in the dark, like you're saying, when you're a new grad, if you don't know, like, okay, is this, is it, you don't even know, like, is this a normal day? Like, is this what every day is going to be like? Because if not, I'm, if it is, I'm out. Like, <laughs> And I think when I went home and tried to, like early days, tried to talk to my friends and family about how I was feeling, I was just, and it's no criticism of them because maybe I just didn't understand or they just didn't understand what I was going through, was, oh, yeah, at the start of every new job, it's really stressful, isn't it? And so that kind of reinforced in my mind, oh, should I just get over it? Is this just what is... I should be accepting this level of stress and I'm just building it up in my head and making it more than it is and I'm just perpetuating it instead of actually realising, no, this is a bit more than what should be acceptable or is helpful. And I, I, I think in those instances, that's where your, your peers and your, you know, even your graduate network, um, you know, the people you graduated with and keeping in contact with them, I think that's where they sort of really come into their own because that's the kind of stuff you really want to be bouncing ideas off like oh what are you guys doing what are you expected to do how much are you how are you coping because you've got a group of people that are either going through the same thing or have just gone through the same thing that you have and I think on terms of trying to nut out what's air quotes normal is something that I feel, and I know people are going to disagree with me, that that's probably something better suited to peers who are actually going through it themselves. I mean, you can definitely talk about that stuff with an experienced clinician, but the the only issue then is, one, when that experienced clinician went through, say, for example, that experienced clinician was a new grad 15 years ago. Health was a different ball game 15 years ago. It was a completely different world. People were different. The occupations that they did was different. Everything about that workplace was different 15 years ago. So you're comparing apples with oranges. Like we're comparing monkeys with homo sapiens. Like that was probably a bad example. But <laughs> evolution. we're comparing two different time periods is what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> So, yes, okay, and that is that is assuming they can even remember what it was like and what it felt like. I can't remember, and that was 10, 11 years ago. Like, I know it was probably stressful, 
And I know, I, I don't remember like the level of stress because a lot's happened since then and I've been through a lot and I've learned a lot and I'm a completely different person. But also, health is a completely different ball game from 11 years ago. What I had to actually do and the level I had to get to, if I went back to that exact same work, and I can't because it's closed, but if I was to go back to that exact same workplace and how it's operating today, assuming it was, it would be different. Like, the people they would see was different. Um, it was in mental health, so, like, the diagnoses um, that they would be working with would be different. The, you know, the management would be different. The, everything would be different. Like, the context is important, and I think a lot of people, that's why I think that that dealing with that issue as a new grad is probably best suited to the people that are actually going through it themselves. And, yes, they may get some... Uh, you know, support or ideas as a group from an experienced clinician, but I don't know if the experienced clinician is the best person to be working through that with them. Does that make can sense? I slightly disagree with you? Yeah, no, you can majorly disagree <laughs> with me if you like. I partly disagree with you. I fully agree with everything you said, except when you say it's the only form, <laughs> only okay. peer. Were we saying peer supervision or just talking like a peer support network because you felt experienced clinicians couldn't provide kind of in context oh, I, I don't I don't know if it's that they can't I just think that they're not the best option. the best option yeah. okay I think well either peer yeah. support or peer supervision which is just formalized peer support um, I just think people that are going through it at the same time as you and understand some of the nuance around what you're experiencing are better able to as a group better able to support each other i feel my opinion and maybe as we become more experienced and our own knowledge of well-being and our ability to uh, act therapeutically we will be the best supports for each other but i feel right now as new grads yes i fully agree that we're the best supports in the sense that we understand what we're going through. It's the same context for us, the same time frame, generation, everything. And it's we have shared experiences. But to some extent, it can be arguably the blind leading the blind, for the lack of a better phrase, yeah, in that we don't have all these experiences to compare what's happening to us, what we're going through right now to. It's us just kind of well, this happened to me. Did that happen to you? What should we do about it? Is this good or bad? I don't know because we don't have uh, years of experience yet to compare it to whilst an experienced clinician can be more of an objective perspective and someone from the outside who can look in and be like, well, this is what you're saying. This is what I'm actually reading on your face. From my experience, this has happened. And, and of course, one experienced clinician is not necessarily going to provide the best mm. feedback or the best advice always or ever but I think a combination of the peer support and an experienced clinician can kind of cover all areas yeah yeah definitely no, I, I'd agree with that I think I, I I think that they could offer more of that sort of where to from here kinds of uh, support or like what you can what this is what we're feeling what can we do but then again, I, I still think the potential is there for that to happen in a peer group. And I wonder whether we need to better prepare students or provide students with, not students, sorry, new grads, 
maybe prepare them while they're students uh, with the resources to be able to have those conversations and how do we work out, you know, what to do as a peer group? I don't know, just a thought, maybe. Maybe it might not work. I'm sure someone, no, out, like I'm sure someone out there has investigated it. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's even linked to our age, like our current maturity levels as well for the majority of us as new grads. We're in our round about early 20s. So maybe it's just linked to our life experiences as well. And so maybe that has something to do with it. Because I see a lot of uh, the reason I, I think that the peer group might be the best area for it is I think the new grad experience for, say, a mature age student is a very different experience to, say, someone who's, you know, gone either gone straight from high school into university or, you know, within a couple of years of that. Um, so they're coming out of their undergrad or their master's or whatever sort of course that people are doing, and they might be, you know, early 20s still. Uh, and I I think that the coping mechanisms, and again, like you said, it's probably just due to life experience, but the coping mechanisms used and how those uh, transitions are navigated is quite different from what I've observed um, between yeah, new graduates who are you know, early 20s and, you know, say mature age students who might be 30 and above kind of thing. So it's like it can be done. I'm just wondering like how, like how can we better prepare because the majority of our new grads are going to be in that early 20s. Like, you know, in, in any cohort that I've taught in the last couple of years, like there might be maybe two or three mature age students um, out of the cohort, There's a, the vast majority is still, you know, younger people. So how can we better prepare them? Yes, obviously we can't just like put them through a whole life's worth of experiences and hope that they pick up all the, uh, you know, the lessons, the life lessons throughout that. But is there some sort of framework we can give them? Is there a, you know, a PR networking tool or skill that can be taught? Yeah, these are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> Even if it's, I think I'd feel a bit safer in a, if it was purely peer support, if there was someone just a little bit more experienced hovering in the background, maybe just facilitating the discussion, not leading it, but just that if we end up going off on some tangent that's entirely wrong, <laughs> that there's someone there to catch us at the end of the day, but maybe that's not necessary. Yeah, I don't know. I I I, I think that could have its place i think it would depend on the group as well like in my experience with groups if that was happening it would just be a reason to make the group bigger you know you play off people's strengths some people's strengths like my one of my strengths is just being completely logical and working through things in a very logical fashion that kind of thing which some group members it's not some group members their their strength might be like the big ideas and you know the the motivation and the passion and that kind of thing whereas you know everyone in their group in the group is going to have something that they can contribute and as a group people grow based on everyone's strengths so if and this isn't just about supervision i think any group any group if any group comes to a sort of a stall to me it's and the group is working well obviously to me that is time to make the group bigger bring some more strengths bring some more opinions bring some more perspectives into the group and as a, a whole you know rising tide raises all ships kind of thing 
when you say it like that, it does sound like, yeah, we do actually have, I think we would have the capacity for us to, you know, self-run a peer group without needing someone more experienced. And maybe it's just because of our current lack of experience leads to less confidence in ourselves that we can end up at the right decisions without someone double-checking our answers. That's super common with, with, I would almost say all new grads (laughs) is that I I have a lot of people either coming up to graduation, that kind of thing. Like, I don't feel like I know enough. I don't feel like, you know, I I have, I know what, how to be an OT kind of thing. I'm like, just go, you know, more than you think. And you are going to surprise yourself with how much, you know, I think the capacities that people have built throughout their course or even just growing up throughout the, you know, three or four years, however long your course was will surprise you when it comes time to actually need it. I think a lot of people don't give themselves enough credit. So my my natural reaction, I guess in saying that, my natural reaction isn't to fall back on we need some external help. It's more use it as a learning activity. I see everything as a learning activity. So <laughs> if if you're, you're struggling with something, what can I learn from it? Why am I struggling with this? Why is it affecting me so much? Why does it get to me that I don't know how to do that? Like, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you're a failure or that you shouldn't be there or that kind of thing. So that kind of, again, we've come full circle, back to self-reflection. Like, why does this get to me? Why do I not feel like I know what I'm doing when everything so far, I haven't been given anything that I couldn't do. I've managed it and, yeah, okay, I'm getting a bit overwhelmed with stress, that kind of stuff. And that's another thing. Okay, what can I learn from this? I can learn. Let's try something else with regards to stress management that I can implement. Let's see if we, let's see if we can give it a go. The, what's the worst that can happen? I'm still stressed. Like, that's the worst that can happen. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try something else. You are radiating gr- growth mindset right now and I'm loving it. <laughs> That's my that's that's my new wheelhouse apparently. Yeah, no, it's good. So I'm I am that to a fault in that I nowadays struggle coping with people that are more comfortable sitting in that victim role kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like I I struggle with people that you know here's an issue. I'm like, okay, that's cool. What are we gonna do about it? Don't know. I'm like, well, let's get the solution-focused stuff going. Let's start coming up with some solutions. Trial and error isn't a bad thing. Like, if that's all we've got and we've got, okay, I'm really stressed. All right, what can you do? You can go for a run. You can kick a footy. You can watch a movie. You can have a nap. You can blah, 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 blah. These are different things that are very well known to help reduce stress. Have you done any of them? No? All right, let's give it a crack. Which one of them appeals to you? I'm going to have a nap. All right, sweet. Do that. When you wake up, we'll see if you're still stressed. Like, let's let's do something. Let's do... I'm a, I'm a you're doer. a fixer. You're a problem solver. I am. Yeah. To a fault. Mm. To a, definitely to a fault. There's, Ask my there, there's definitely like a little bit of a, a balance, isn't there, when someone comes to you with a problem. it's You're not wanting to jump right into that problem solve it, fix it mode because that can take away from their experience that they're trying to share with you. So it's finding the right amount of time of being like understanding what they're feeling and reflecting that back to them that you've understood. Have I got this right? You know, paraphrasing it back and all those little skills. And then sometimes gently moving into problem solving mode, especially if this is something that they've been ruminating on for a while 
and it's you kind of like mm, this is time we actually try something now we've had our time to feel and experience the emotion let's see if we can move forward but it can be a bit of a, a juggling act and definitely in itself a trial and error with different people as well with what they need 100 percent, 100 percent, and i think that's that's something that i've been probably in the last year reflecting on for myself like i am now aware that because we're feeling i never i didn't realize like i would just my natural reaction was to just jump in and try and fix things yeah people will be like i just want you to validate and listen i'm like all right and even that now even after i knew that i'm like hey, this is frustrating me because mm. my natural gut reaction was just to jump in try and fix things throw solutions at them what have you tried if you haven't tried anything why are you winching to me go and try something like that was my natural reaction so that has been a growth point for me come out of reflection, come out of, uh, you know, experience, that kind of thing. So for me, in a lot of ways now, it's about, okay, well, I know what I would do. I need to know when, how, they're, how they think kind of thing. And it's a matter of, well, okay, my natural reaction is to jump to solutions, whereas I need to support that other person to uh come to solutions on their own exactly Exactly. it's got nothing to do with me like i can throw all the ideas at you i want doesn't matter we know if they're part of the um coming up with the solutions or coming up with the ideas they're more likely to follow through with it as you were talking it was just full i but i guess it's transferable to all fields to me it was just full pediatrics you can't sit (laughs) and just give them the solution for a lot of problems for a lot of situations that come up you have to use things like guided discovery work with them help them understand why they need to do things a certain way you can tell them you need to shower every day and they'll be like cool still not going to do it or like this is a way to tie your shoelaces cool still don't care but if they're part of the process of learning why or the strategies we choose or the rewards we choose they're more likely Mm -hmm. to follow our instructions or follow the strategies we put in place and I guess that's the same maybe for when we are counseling a friend or a client or a consumer that once they feel like you have taken the time to listen to them and you value them and you've respected them then they're more likely to follow your advice and go through that problem solving um, stage yeah yeah for sure definitely couldn't agree more I thought you were calling me a big kid then, but that's no, okay. no, no. <laughs> I've been called. I've been called worse. It's okay. <laughs> Obviously, we've touched on some of the things where, like, when things go wrong. I'm not trying to scare new grads no, into no. like that. What do you think are some of the biggest growth areas that you've had personally through this transition from student to new grad? Knowing that I can do it, knowing that I am, I am, and can be an OT, and I have the potential to be a great OT and some people, clients already think I am a great OT and that's it's wonderful when you hear that because it can be hard for us to stop and be like, hey, that was a great thing I just did or good for me or I can't believe I did that, like giving ourselves that, uh, what's the compliments, complimenting ourselves. Um, so I think, I think it sadly has taken that external feedback for me to realise and kind of congratulate myself on what I've been able to achieve and accomplish the past seven months. Um, I think also, like we were saying before about knowing our worth, I don't think I know I'm an expert in that now, but that I'm more self-aware of being aware of what my worth is, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think 
learning more about how my my skills have been transferable between fields and different presentations and like for example uh, when I was working in pediatrics children who would come or teenagers who would come with different diagnoses that I'd never seen before things like that but bringing it back to they're still a kid at the end of the day I'm going to treat them all the same in the way that just because they have this condition that seems very complex and they look different than I've ever seen or worked with someone who looks like this that can be sometimes like oh my goodness I don't know what I'm doing do I need to do something special and I've always brought it back to they're a kid I'm going to be playful with them I'm going to incorporate their interests and that those foundation those foundations of practice and building therapeutic alliance can be really widely applied to almost everyone that walks through my door um and now that I'm in mental health I'm still finding so many crossovers between pediatrics and working with adults in forensic mental health um, yeah, yep. which I'm not necessarily going to tell them that oh this is really similar to pediatrics but <laughs> this is like working with children <laughs> not in that sense but I think I think it's more that we the things we enjoy and appreciate from others doesn't change over the lifespan someone listening to us someone uh genuinely wanting to know how we feel or what we like or what our life is and our goals are and I think we all appreciate that so I think there's actually a lot of crossover between how we approach pediatrics and how we should be approaching adult OT yeah yeah definitely and I think what you were saying before is about like starting with those basic foundational type skills like that's that's one of my arguments forever is that like people sort of identify as you know a mental health OT or a peds OT and they that's it they think that that's that's them and I'm like it's the same skill set I've never worked in peds and yeah I probably don't possess all of the like really specific skill sets but I could get the basics like that's like I start with occupation their occupations play all right let's see how they play like mm-hmm. I'm sure I could fumble my way through at least day one. So, <laughs> like, the those foundation skills are, are those really core things that we, we learn at uni, and they're the same no matter what, or they should be, the same no matter what practice area you end up in. So that's that's the kind of stuff I think that students often don't give themselves enough credit for. Like, you know how to work. at When you graduate, you know how to work in every possible setting just with those core skills. And I think we don't give the those those real core um, foundational occupational therapy skills enough credit for, for what they I are. I agree. One thing I was going to ask you, you brought up just before is around, um, you know, giving yourself those little compliments, ce- celebrating those little wins. Do you think we're kind of, we, the royal we, um, at a place where we almost avoid that where it's it's not seen as you know the, gross, the done thing to kind of yeah complimenting yourself or ex- accepting a compliment i was just yeah. talking about this yesterday i was like i feel gross when so i can't be like yes i do look pretty today i know like you can't that's just socially to me unacceptable if i said that i would feel strange but so i'm personally still learning how to eloquently take a compliment so i i'm pretty self-aware of the fact that that's something I need to improve on but I think it is definitely something that I've noticed a lot of people struggle with 
And especially, I think it's something for us to be more aware of in fields maybe like mental health where you're not going to be getting necessarily this positive feedback from the consumers, from the clients themselves. So we really have to be seeking that feedback and compliments of our work in other ways. So I'm not sure exactly how to do that yet, but yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think you do need to look at those sort of alternate measures of success, whether it's, you know, I, I think a lot of that can come from yourself as well as, you know, other people. Because like you said, mental health, and again, in my experience in mental health, you don't get a lot of external feedback. I haven't really thought about in depth as to why, and maybe it's just the, depending on which area of mental health you work, maybe it's the the environment that you're in, whether it's a hospital, no one wants to be in hospital. Like you don't get a lot of feedback from from people in a in an acute mental health unit, that kind of thing, yeah. or or forensic. If you're in a forensic unit, like you're dealing with people who also have ex- other stresses around, you know, dealing with the legal system as well, and they just want to get through it. They don't care how it happens or you know who helps them and that kind of thing. So you know, complimenting people probably isn't high on their agenda. But I think I think that even to the point of, like you said before, like, oh, that was a really cool thing that I did or that was a good idea that I came up with or, you know, that that intervention worked really well and that's because I tried this today kind of thing. I think even to that point of just, like, even thinking that we did a good thing is almost, like, on the on the taboo side at the moment. I don't know why. I don't know why looking at i think i don't know whether people think it's vain or whether people think it's like oh, i'm so up myself by thinking that i did a good job but i i think that it's something that we need to do more of mm-hmm. yeah because we do do amazing work and we need to acknowledge that as well yeah i'm, I'm always envious of when i see someone not envious that's not the right word but happy for someone when i see that they can take a compliment or they can accept it well, and I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that thought now. But <laughs> <laughs> this happens too often. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think, like personally, I know some of the background of why it's hard for me personally to take compliments. But I see it too often in so many people that it is actually quite sad that that's just a fact at the moment it's something i've noticed like over the years that it seems like more and more people don't like celebrating the good things that happen at work or the good things that happen in the profession whether it's a fear of like i said people thinking that they're up themselves or i don't know what it is but it's just something i've noticed and i i don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's you know, a social media thing or I, I, I don't know, but it's an observation that I've definitely made. It's, it's, I, I think it's something that we definitely need to acknowledge and, and look into because I do think celebrating those things is important. Like how do we know, how do we keep doing a good job if we don't acknowledge that we're doing a good job mm. kind of thing? Like it's, it's important. I, I realized towards the end of my last job that we would do at weekly meetings and something I really liked was we would do wins and fails and have warm and fuzzies, which are compliments to each other. And so we would do wins and fails of our clinical work or if a report was really good or the NDIS complimented us on something or the NDIA. Um, And I realized that 
I never put my hands up like to ever say a win. And when I'd listen to other people's wins for most of the time, I'd be like, oh, I guess I have examples just like that. But in my mind, those things that happened to me, I was thinking that's just part of my job. They achieve their goal. Well, that's just what my job was. But I'm not thinking that when I hear someone else say they win, I'm saying, oh, that's so good. Like, I'm so happy for her or him. That's amazing. But I never thought of my own work or achievements in the same way. And so then I started yeah, that's interesting. to acknowledge, like, tell my friends across the hall who was a speechy, like, oh, he just learned how to tie his shoes in like three sessions or she's gone to the toilet or blah, blah. I tried to then celebrate those things more with the people around me. And I realized that makes me feel, that made me feel uh, a lot happier when I wasn't mm. feeling super happy during that time because they would yeah, celebrate yeah. with me and that would lift me up more because they'd be like, oh, that's so amazing. You're such a good, such a good OT. And I know I'm not going to sit there and say to myself, oh, I'm such a good OT. I, I had to get that from someone else because I'm not going to sit there and say that to myself. But Say it right now. <laughs> I am an amazing OT, guys. <laughs> there. Yeah. It's recorded now. Really it's true. <laughs> it's out there. And anyway, maybe that's what it is. Maybe we need to like do like a little morning mantra. And in the mirror and just repeat yeah, yeah. it back to I'm going to write it on the like staff wall <laughs> or something. Like, Have it on your Repeat after me. It can be like yeah. the meditation mantra. And maybe that's what it takes. Maybe that's what it takes. But I do think it's neat, like if you are a person that, like you said, some people probably can take compliments and are aware of, you know, when they do good things. But if you're one of those people that's not, I think that's something that you need to acknowledge and 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 take on board and have a think about, well, not necessarily why, because who knows, that could get deep and dark. But you need to at least, if you're not going to take personal compliments, you need to at least try and acknowledge when you do good work or when you're able to you know help other people try and try and acknowledge the good things that you're doing for other people or within your work or that kind of thing because that's like I said if we don't know if we want to keep doing good work we need to acknowledge good work yeah and and there's not always someone else there to do it for us no unfortunately as much as we'd love to have someone just follow us around and you know tell us how amazing we are but yeah, I guess then it'll probably Horrible. lose. <laughs> so I'll follow you around. <laughs> you go, girl, with like pom poms or like I don't yeah, know. yeah, little cheerleaders. Oh, jeez, <laughs> that'd be amazing. It'd be amazing. What's next for your YouTube channel? What's the future of endless education? That's a great question. <laughs> um, look, I'm not really sure because obviously my initial plan when I made the channel was, well, this will then flow into me studying something else and me adding, when I was wanting to study um, medicine, it was, I was wanting to bring OT to medicine. I was wanting to bring the lens of an OT into, on top of, I guess, the lens of a practitioner, a doctor, Uh, just from discussions with people where they felt like they weren't being listened to or, they didn't feel like they were being considered holistically and things like that. And I felt like, oh, maybe my background could help me be a good doctor. Um, so, but I think mental health, well-being, burnout, self-care, and then the fields of child and youth mental health in particular are, are my passions. So I'd love to be able to contribute to that space, those spaces, I guess, 
more and maybe that's through my channel or that's through research or teaching one day or something like that. Um, but honestly, just without sounding like I'm preaching OT, spread the word of OT around the world. <laughs> um, I don't, it just, it always surprises me. No, it doesn't surprise me. It's sad that it doesn't surprise me that so many people don't know what OT is. And why do you think that is? Oh, this, is one, this is one of my like pet soapboxes. So. Lack of representation in the media. No, um, well, maybe, maybe that too. I'm not sure. I think even within ourselves, it's kind of hard for us to often describe what we are, which it, with the definition that encompasses all that we are because we're an ever-changing, ever-growing profession to some extent. I mean, we're going into new areas. We've, you can't call us basket weavers really anymore. So we've definitely grown and shifted. I've never, I've never weaved a basket. I've never weaved a basket either. But people still throw that compliment <laughs> towards us. Um, go make a basket. What? Um, Marie Kondo. <laughs> putting everything in baskets i think just also our awareness and education of within allied health and then the wider health clinician world of each other's professions i feel like we don't never had a lecture going this is a basic outline of what a speech pathologist does a physiotherapist an audiologist and maybe if that was more integrated into our education that would help us as health professionals to relate to each other and maybe respect our roles a bit more because I that's definitely a challenge that I've come across and heard about a lot of us experiencing, especially within multidisciplinary teams, understanding where our boundaries are and feeling as if we're a respected part of a treating team. Interesting. Yep. Did you have at a, your uni any, like, classes with the other disciplines? Uh, from the top of my head, we had anatomy which we're not, that was our first year subject. Yeah, yeah. So we're not really going to be talking about anything too heavy yeah. based then. Um, That's about it. Maybe sociology, but I can't remember. I think they've just introduced at my union interdisciplinary, interprofessional subject. So I think I was on the course development committee for that. I think that they've introduced that. Um, and then that could okay. be with pharmacy students as well, like a few other. But I think if that was... I was thinking about this, if we had more group assignments or we had group assignments that encouraged mm. us to think of each of our disciplines and maybe put together a treating plan or something like that, that could have, could be beneficial. Yeah, because I just know like at the uni that I work at, especially through first year, there's quite a lot, like probably the majority of the subjects are with uh, at least OT, speech and physio. And some, oh, there's not a lot with X-Fizz. There's a couple with, or there's one with dentistry, but they're on a different campus. Um, like there's some interdisciplinary, you know, some of the group assignments, like you said, like uh, you're working as a group, but you'll want you to, you know, highlight what your individual professions are going to do in this case kind of thing. So it'd be interesting to see if any other universities sort of have thought of that or taken that approach. Because I, I agree with you. I think that that could be, uh, an important step in OTs recognizing where their place is or what our special contribution is to that sort of healthcare fabric. Or even experiencing advocating for our role. Because I think one of the, the 
first memories I have of being in that scenario, being an MDT, was once I was on placement, it was a tutorial with other students on placement at the hospital. And so we were one or two from each discipline. And there was a social work student there. And I put forward that, oh, I we could go do a home visit together to the client because I know we can kind of cross over in mm. that, that social environment, political environment, that type of um, information gathering and concerns. And I remember her saying, we would never do that. That would never happen. An OT and a social worker going on a home visit together, ridiculous. And I was like, what? Okay. I've um, done that a number of uh, times. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> just maybe having those experiences early where we have to then go, well, this is our scope. This is your scope. Maybe we could just be a bit more collaborative right now and theoretically go on this home visit together instead of doubling up on information. Just having those practices of advocating, yeah, yeah, because uh, it probably will happen in all of our careers. I hope that it does. <laughs> no, that's that's a really good point. I I like that. Um, I think uh, I do think that OTs quite often aren't clear what we offer, and you know that leads to all sorts of creative and colourful practices that aren't necessarily anything to do with occupation sometimes but yeah that's a that's a whole nother side that's a rabbit hole that we we can save for another day maybe did we answer the question did we even answer the question about what where your youtube channel's going or are you avoiding it oh um <laughs> going in many wonderful directions i'd love to interview people i don't know if i'm very good at it but i'd love to interview people more and just have so more discussion. one way to find out Sorry, is there only one way to find out? Yes, well, <laughs> our interview will be a trial, won't it? Yeah, I think I'm not sure yet because I think I just have so many, not so many, but I have a few areas of interest that I'd like to create content for. And then I'm really open to anyone requesting content they want to see as well. Yeah, awesome. And you're now involved with the OT Hub? I am. As well, what are, you, what, is, what are you doing with the the hub, Jamie and the team? <laughs> so I'm currently their video lead, uh, and so that's helping with curating their video library, and hopefully starting to put out some more content for them, including doing these interviews with different clinicians around the world and from different fields. Uh, so I guess there's that crossover between my channel and the OT hub in wanting to provide different perspectives and experiences and discussions about different topics relevant to us as healthcare clinicians. So is the content that you're making for the hub separate from your channel or is it on your channel and promoted through the hub? So at the moment, I think the majority of the content that's shared on the OT hub has been from content I've made on my channel. And I think that the interviews that I'll do will often be on both platforms. Yep. But I'd still like to make content that's specific to each platform, if that makes sense. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, of course. Awesome. Well, that's I I have admired the uh, the hub and everything they do, just all encompassing OT resources for. I think I first had contact with Jamie, uh, like I think it was after I dropped like the first episode of this. Uh, and we spoke a couple of times on the phone about different things. So I'll have to, I'll have to hit him up. If you're listening, Jamie, <laughs> message me. Let's do this. Let's make a podcast. 
Something that's of interest to me is, I guess Mm -hmm. we've already covered it, but the mental health of health professionals. Okay. So whether... As in like as a research idea or as like how how is it an interest? What's what's the interest? Well, I think it sparked probably from the mental health of uh, doctors and medical students Mm -hmm. and how that is often not great. A lot of the time due to their workload, stresses, perhaps bullying in the workplace, things like that. Um, And, yeah, whether there needs to be more, like what can be done to improve that. And then also I guess now experiencing my own uh, six months as a health professional and experiencing difficulties maintaining my own well-being and seeing it Mm -hmm. in my friends around me that it could be just the wider health professions, not just medicine, experiencing these things. I think it is, uh, in my experience, I think it is the wider professions. I just think that medicine has a lot more unique stresses associated with that profession that probably compound it. So they probably do. I mean, obviously them and nurses would do a lot of shift work, um, a lot on terms of professional responsibility and uh, like client safety responsibility, often that falls on the doctor, whoever's signing off on things, especially in mental health. So I think there's a lot of unique stresses to that profession that makes it probably worse than most professions. I'm term not worse, that's in the profession's worse, but like the stress and their mental health outcomes. But I, I don't think like poor mental health outcomes are any... I don't think anyone would be surprised that there's poor mental health outcomes in a lot of health professions. And, and it's similar similar to what we were talking about. It's a lot of the time it's people that will put everything into their work and they kind of, not that they forget, but taking care of themselves kind of takes a backseat. So the same thing, the same thing that we're talking about with like for new grads, I think if we can instill those good habits into new grads, then it's going to create a healthier workforce, you know, as they become the experienced clinicians and hopefully then they pass on good habits and healthy habits and that kind of thing to their new grads and so on and so forth. And perhaps instilling in us, I feel like it was instilled in us during my degree that it's okay to talk about it. There's, there still feels like, such stigma just bringing it up or being open with it for the fear of and I I felt this actually as well bringing up how I was feeling with my manager so I felt like Mm -hmm. oh they're going to take away my part of my caseload are they going to be like oh don't give her anything now she's not feeling well so don't and that's all in my head that's not necessarily how they were actually going to react but this sense of I can't reveal that I've had this history of this or that I'm feeling this way to my uh, clinical educator because they'll look down upon me or they'll mark me down in something or they'll hold it against me. And in the end, I did actually feel like it was held against me a little bit that I expressed that I was feeling stressed at yep. the end of the day I was doing all my work, but it, they felt, it felt like they were still holding it over me a little bit that I had admitted that I was feeling stressed. And I think it's experiences like that that, then compound like the next time that you yeah. feel like you need to like you you sec even though it could be a completely different workplace and they could be super supportive there's still going to be that like second guess in your mind if you do have to talk to your manager about it 
Um, I, I completely agree. I've been through a very similar thing uh, where, you know, my mental health wasn't doing great and I didn't feel like I could talk to my manager at the time about it. But then there was a whole other, I guess it was kind of a stigma around the fact that how did I let my mental health get this bad? I work in mental health. Like I'm helping these people help like to, to work through their uh, things and I, I'm not even able to manage myself. And this is sort of my internal dialogue was beating myself up over it. And that coupled with not being able to talk to management and trying to sort of sort it all out myself in my own time kind of thing, it just sort of all came to a head. So, and I agree that there is, unfortunately, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, there are going to be managers that are going to hold it against you or they're going to look down on it. And to me, that just makes you a really shit manager. But I'd be lying if I said that they weren't out there. No, not everyone's going to have the most amazing manager every job that you're in. But you you like to hope that you 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 work in a team that is supportive and you know can help out and can shift workloads around between them. Even like if I'm in a good place and someone I'm working with is having a bit of a hard time, like I'm happy to take on some some Absolutely. extra load from them. Like that's how a team works. Hopefully, especially like a a good well functioning you know team, whether it's an MDT or an OT team, whatever it is. Um, and I've worked in good ones, I've worked in bad ones, I've worked in average ones, I've worked in completely siloed ones. They're, they're, they're good, they're bad. They're, there's no way to really, no obvious way of how to tell before you get there, unfortunately. So it's a matter of being able to, well, okay, I do have support or I don't have support. What do I do now? I think something that I've noticed that myself and my colleagues who my friends are doing more is now we're quite openly talking to each other about how are you feeling and being much more explicit with I'm having these thoughts or I couldn't get out of bed yesterday or just Mm. not not sugarcoating it because to some extent what's the point of doing that like you're not really going to be achieving a lot if you're saying I felt sad yesterday but that's okay I feel sad so like sometimes being more explicit if it's with people you know can handle it maybe that's a way for us to be reducing stigma in the yeah. wider community we had a dinner party last night and I took a moment with all OTs we all graduated together we all came together uh, eight of us that's awesome down and there was a moment where I was like we are having a really frank discussion about our mental health I'm hearing very like symptom symptomatic words being used medical words being used and I know exactly what you're talking about and I'm I'm for to some degree shocked because I didn't realize that that's how you were going but I'm so happy that you're telling me right now that that's Mm. how you're going because now I can be more aware of it I'm not going to look down on you or think of you any less I'm just as your friend and as your colleague going to be more aware that all the people around me can be experiencing so much but don't share it or hold it or try and hide it for fear of other people judging them or thinking less of them or treating them differently. And that just having these conversations amongst friends, especially when they're health professionals, we really shouldn't be scared of or afraid of having these conversations with other OTs 
we should be able to take it. We should be able to handle it. We're health professionals at the end of the day. We should be the best people to some degree to be confiding in and discussing what we're going through because we get it from the medical point of view and we should be able to support each other because we're friends. And uh, yeah, just it's quite Definitely. frustrating stigma to me. <laughs> no, no, I, I completely agree. And I think once you've found... Uh, I think if you can and you do have that sort of group that you can confide in and have those discussions with, that's an amazing resource and you need to foster that. And like, I'd be bring other people into it, like spread that love, like be able to, I guess, almost lead by example with this is the kinds of conversations that we should be able to have with people with, especially friends. Um, but, you know, like you said, with the, your fellow graduates and uh, whoever else you feel like it's something that you can entrust with, we we shouldn't, it should be a matter of, okay, who am I going to talk to as opposed to, can I talk to someone? Like, I think that you should have options like, okay, who can I talk to? This person's, you know, I, I, I they're busy, they're, you know, whatever, they're busy, whatever. I'm going to talk to this person. All right, I'm going to give them a ring or see if they want to catch up for coffee or something like that. Like it should be a matter of like which person am I going to be able to talk to today as opposed to, oh, do am I even going to be able to say this to someone? Are they going to judge me? Are they going to, you know, look down on me? Are they going to report me to mm. the registration board or like I think, and the other thing is, I think the sooner that you do have those conversations, the better it is. Absolutely. Because what's that going to foster? That hiding of your mental health, that, yeah. that's not going to end well, is that everyone's just pretending like they're okay and letting it build up, build up and have no resource, accessing no resources. That's, that's not going anywhere good. And I think SOT's leading by example is a, a really powerful thing, even for the people that we work with. Like, we expect, and I know people are going, oh, we don't expect it. But we do. We expect people that we work with to be comfortable and talk to us and open up to us and for us to help them, and for them to accept our help and, you know, help us help them us help them work through all of these issues. But then when it comes to our own, we're like, oh, shit, can't talk about that. Oh, we, we should be able to. I should be able And I have – it took me a long time to sort of get to that mindset, but I've had frank discussions with people that I've worked with about my experiences with mental health and you know even to the point of like coping mechanisms like I tried this I actually found it really useful or you know I know this didn't work for me but I've heard from other people that they tried it and it worked for them things like that like people people will be able to almost see the authenticity in you from a clinical point like benefit of you being able to open up like that it does create a much more authentic clinician in my opinion, again, in my opinion. But uh, I think definitely 100% we, you need to be able to open up to someone, to someone. You don't care if it's your mum. Ring your mum. Have this chat with your mum. If that's who you're comfortable talking with, if you've got a group of friends like you had last night, it sounds amazing that you can just have these really blunt, you know, I had an absolute rubbish day. Here's why I was cranky at the world. I hated this. This person said this to me and I just snapped, blah, blah, blah. Because that is the first step of 
well, okay, well, why did those things happen? And then it can be, well, okay, well, what can I do to stop it happening in the future? And when can I recognize that it's heading downhill so I can catch it before it does? That's the first step in learning is getting it all out there. And I think also uh, being able to express it to someone who can accept it and not just shove it away is like one of one of the nicest feelings you can have sometimes when you've been holding all these feelings and you're like, oh, that's so, you not feel guilty, but it kind of, it doesn't feel good to not feel good. And <laughs> I'm not saying this in a great way, but. <laughs> <laughs> Just get it out. That's the first step. I know what I mean, but I'm gonna, like, articulate it. When, when you're honest, you you open up to someone about how you're feeling, how you've been feeling, say for months, and it's you've been keeping it inside, and you almost feel guilty that you're feeling this way, and you release it to someone, and they're able to validate how you're feeling, and not walk away from you. They're still sitting there across the table once you've divulged this, I don't know, the, this gross information about yourself. This that elephant you, in the room. Yeah, that you're still accepted once you've revealed that part of yourself. They haven't left you and walked away. That you, that first, to me, that's kind of like a first step that admitting to yourself and admitting to others how you're actually going and proof that it's okay that that's where you are right now by someone accepting it and listening to it and not saying, you don't actually feel that way. That's, you're not depressed. Just get over it. But someone sitting there and listening to it, I think is a big deal even before you jump into, okay, what can we do now to fix this or what have you tried? Well, I think one of the barriers to why people wouldn't or don't open up is probably because they feel like it's going to change the relationship with whoever it is, whether it's, you know, they're going to judge me or they're going to hate me or they're not going to like me anymore or whatever it is. So I think part of that would be, okay, I've got this out. They've acknowledged it like, oh, big like relief, like, okay, this isn't as bad as my brain made it sound like it was going to be. You know, this person hasn't run away. They're not screaming. They haven't punched me. Uh, maybe this is like almost like that first, like maybe this is going to be okay kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I think too, once you've done it, the I guess the first time, it becomes easier. So it seems like this massive hurdle yeah. when you first do it. But once you've done it and... I guess uh, this is assuming that that initial uh, interaction goes well. That's what I was Um, thinking, yeah. Then, and I I would say 99% of the time that it would because I think a lot of the issues and a lot of the boundaries, the barriers that we put in place are in our heads. But I think once that first interaction happens and you go, oh, shit, okay, this isn't isn't too bad. I I I can do this and then you feel better after it because you've been able to actually speak and get it off your chest and all that sort of stuff as well. It's like almost this rush of endorphins. Like that was a positive experience. Like I'm going to be more open to this in the future and it becomes easier, even if it's just with that person to start with. But I can guarantee that once you've opened up to someone, opening up to other people becomes easier as well. Absolutely. And I think it's still important for us to acknowledge that maybe the first person you do open up to isn't going to be everything you hoped, mm. how they respond, but that you don't stop there. And I know that's easier said than done to be like, 
that person basically rejected me. Why should I bother talking to someone else? But honestly, there will be someone. It, it might take a while. It might not take a while. But honestly, just keep trying to find someone who will be there with you and listen to you and will care. I know, and I'm only saying this because I'm hoping maybe it will help someone, that the first psychologist I went to made me feel like crap. She just made me feel like crap. I told her everything that was happening and at the end of the session she said, so it sounds like you have a great life. And I just walked out there wanting to get hit by a car. Like I just was like, that's not what just happened. And it took me a while to then go see someone else and I told them what happened and they were like, that, that's not what should have happened. You shouldn't have left feeling that way. Mm. That's that's just awful and so my experiences now have been really positive but it wasn't the first time I spoke to someone or reached out to someone yeah in a lot of things that I've reached out to um things that have happened in my life and I've reached out to people it hasn't always been the first or second person that's actually listened or understood and that is it is a hurdle to then keep Mm -hmm. trying to persevere and be like no my story is worth sharing or I'm important enough to keep trying to get help because you yeah. are, you're, you're so worthy and important of accessing help. You deserve it. It just sometimes might take a little bit of time, but it's worth it. I promise it's always yeah, worth definitely, it. Definitely. Definitely. Like it can feel like it takes a whole lot of effort, but that effort, you'll get that effort back in spades once you find the right, right connection, have those conversations and definitely, definitely so worth it. And then, even if it helps to think about, well, by putting in that effort, you're going to be able to help more people in your job. Like if that, if that's what mm-hmm. helps drive you, you got to find what drives you ideally. Yeah. Like if it's just like, I need to fix me, I need to fix me, that's fine. Think about it like that. But if it helps, because like we were talking about before, yeah. people don't often give themselves compliments. They're not able to see good things, but it might help to say, well, if I can get myself right and i can have my make my, a good connection for me and and work on my mental health i can help two people even like that's you know you've just doubled like you've pa- paid it forward kind of thing i think about it like that um and obviously during a mental health career you're going to help more than two people but even if it helps just to like really dial it down just to think of the small things like i get myself sorted i can help two people those people, I can help those people like sort themselves out. They might be able to help two people. Like that's how this sort of good vibes thing spreads. But yeah, it's 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 a a super complex, mm. not necessarily an issue, but it's a super complex, almost like a subculture at the moment in in health. That I think we as OTs are in a really good space to break it because we do our, our perspective on health does incorporate a lot of these. I guess social type aspects of you know psychology and sociology and social work, all of the little bits and pieces that conceptually other professions are sort of nailed into one or the other. We kind of are able to broadly look over the whole lot of them, which I think puts us in a much better place to start trying to break that culture and be able to you know encourage people to speak up and to look after themselves and 
to support them to look after themselves, not just to tell them, like, you should look after yourself. But, okay, well, how do they do that? Well, we're in a good space to do that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The same, the same thing that makes us super valuable working in a mental health space makes us super valuable working with health professionals. And, you know, we're lucky in that we have that skill set ourselves because we've just we've done the degree. So it's a matter of all. I had someone tell me years ago um, that I was going to OT myself. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is a matter of, okay, this is me. This is how I'm feeling. I'm low as I need to break this down into tiny little steps and I'm just going to do two of these steps each day. Like just as simple as simple can be. And that might be a good starting point. Mm Mm-hmm. And even doing like, like a, a task analysis of things that in your own day, breaking down your own day, where where are my yeah. barriers right now? What's what's the performance breakdown in my day? Like yep. where where do I start going wrong? Yeah, we have the skills, we have the knowledge, we have the power. It's just a matter of, I think I think the main thing is we just need to realize it. Like, because quite often we just don't, we don't think about it, we don't realize it, we don't acknowledge that we can have such a profound impact not only on the people we work with but on ourselves. OT, on terms of my personal development, my career has been the most amazing thing ever. I see the world in a completely different way than I ever even could conceptualize before I did my degree. Even since I finished my degree, the stuff that I've continued to learn within this profession has changed how I see the world, um, changed my ideas on the world, uh, I feel has made me a much better, just a person, let alone a clinician. And I think part of that is almost taking ownership of that personal development and directing it where I want to direct it. So part of, for a period there, my personal development was around my mental health. And how can I do that? Everything that I was reading and looking into and doing had a purpose and it was you know it might have been you know distraction it might have been um forming new healthy habits it might have been just learning about what was going on with me like everything had a purpose and i was in control of my personal development and directing it where i needed it and where i wanted it to be once i realized that i could do that like i said it's part of it is realizing that we can once i realized i could do that that was it i was off and that's that's a powerful moment in anyone's career. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter what profession you're. No, in. that sounds really positive. And I think I like the idea of us just being more self-aware of the skills we have as OTs and prompting ourselves to use them in our own lives and within our own professions, and then hopefully expand expand that to other health professions as well and spread the word type thing. <laughs> And that's it, like, have you heard of Occam's Razor? Yes. Yeah, so essentially 99% of the time, the most simple possible out, uh, possible uh, reason for something happening is going to be the, the main thing that happens, or is going to be the, the actual reason why it happens. So keeping things simple and in its simplest form is, to me, one of the most powerful things we can do. And that's why I get the shits with OTs that, don't see the value in what we can do straight out of the box, straight out of uni. The skill set that we've got 
is so unbelievably earth-shatteringly powerful that we don't give it enough credit because it can change lives, including our own. And I think that's important to, to acknowledge. It's not just that we're going to change the world by fixing all of the, you know, peds patients or <laughs> mental health patients or wherever we're working. We're going to cure every one of their, you know, stroke deficits or whatever it is that our career aspirations take us. But this career is going to make you a better person as long as you are self-aware and take control of it and direct it where you want it to go. It will make you a better human being. You should put that in the course like brochure for studying OT or something. It'll make you a better human being studying OT. I think I think we've got an open day coming up. I think I'm just going to get a megaphone <laughs> and uh, just stand out there and just scream that constantly and annoy every other course that has a, a booth. The degree that will make you a better human being. I like that. <laughs> that's a good, I think that's a good place to leave that. Sounds good. Where can people find you? Your YouTube channel, obviously your Twitter, which is on your YouTube channel. Where can people find you? I think that's it. <laughs> yeah? I mean, yeah, I don't. Endless education. Endless education on YouTube. And then I'm just checking what my Twitter hand. Yeah. Talia underscore <laughs> I don't even know I, your own Twitter handle. No, I'm really not. Oh, like I wish I was better at Twitter and Instagram. I'm just, I think I just more enjoy the medium of video and just, yeah. But so Talia underscore OT on Twitter. And I think it's Talia dot OT on Instagram. And then Endless Education on YouTube. I'll, uh, I'll throw all those links in the show notes. Her YouTube channels on her Twitter account. Her Twitter account's on her YouTube channel. So if you find one, <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll find, find the all. other stuff. Thank you so much for having a chat. It's been really fun. It went to places I did not expect it to go and I loved every minute of it. No, thank you so much. It's been great. Oh, just I'm at the best of times charmingly inarticulate, which I'm very... <laughs> I'm just like, oh no, why did I say that? Or why did I start that sentence like that? But that's okay. Mm-hmm.